Amen. Well, glad you're with us this morning. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in Romans chapter 12. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can open that up, turn or tap your way to Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a copy, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen for you. And we're going to be jumping around quite a bit today. There's lots of big things happening in this part of Romans chapter 12 that the rest of the Bible speaks to uh, in a big way. We do want to take a second and say, just like David said, we're praying for the Bantas, Keith and Adria. They lost Keith's dad this past week. Um, so if you're out there, guys, we are praying for you and you, we love you. We're with you. Um, please be in prayer for them. Remember them as you're praying this week. And let's ask this question. How big is your Christianity? I think it's a fair question. Because you see Christianity expressed by different people in a lot of different ways. And that's okay. But answer the question, how big is your Christianity? Meaning, when you understand the things of the gospel, when you think about those things, are they really, really big? Are they as big as heaven? Are they big as crashing cymbals and loud celebratory noises? Are they gigantic? Are they so big that they're bigger than you? They don't hardly fit in your head and in your soul and everything else around you is being colored by them? Or are they smaller? Is it something that just sort of sits on the side of your mind? It intrudes on kind of a weekly basis at certain different things that you've got going on, but in general, it kind of sits back a little bit. This is something that I think we, we want to think about as Christians and as people who are investigating Christianity. As Christians, you've got to ask this question because your Christianity is probably not lived through you the way that it should be. One of our principal tasks as pastors is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And part of what that means is helping you to see the kind of electricity that you can be plugged into. And to ask questions about why your life isn't showing that level of activity. Showing that level of passion and overwhelmedness, bigness to your faith. And for those who are seeking Christianity, they may look both at the texts, and we hope that you will. Just read the scriptures, open up the Bible, ask hard, perceptive questions about it, and let us, let us help try to explain that stuff and go look it up because it's probably a better question than we know, and then come and share with you answers to Go to the text, the primary source documents about the life of Jesus, and they also look at our lives as Christians. What do they see there? Do they see something tremendous or something subdued? My kids, we're going through, uh, we read the Bible at night before they go to bed. We try to do that every single night. It happens somewhat less frequently than every single night. And we're now getting to the book of Acts. And as we are open to the book of Acts, we're talking about how the, the story from John and the rest of the Gospels just flows right into the book of Acts. And I said, okay, so Jesus goes up into heaven. We talk about how he's, he has his ministry. He dies on the cross. He's resurrected. And then he ascends into heaven. Girls, do you know what happens next? And I have three little girls. And the oldest of the three said, really, really quickly, she piped right up and said, oh, I know. God sent fire on the disciples. They went out and they talked to everybody and 3,012 people got saved and baptized. Now, first, great job, Hope Kids, 
because I haven't taught them that. I haven't forced them to like speak that in some memorized form before I'll give them their dinner. That wasn't something we had worked on. You did a good job, Hope Kids. Second, she's right. Think for a second about the character, again, the bigness of Christianity in the New Testament. You have Jesus come, and when he comes, the speaking, the preaching, the ministry that he brings about lights Jerusalem on fire. It's divisive in the highest degree to the point that he's crucified on a cross. Then, as he's coming to the end of his life, he promises that a comforter will come. Some kind of presence of God will come and will be among his disciples, will lead them, will help them to remember his teaching, will be the cohesive force that brings them together and is God's presence to his people. That presence is what we have now in the church. And when he promised this comforter, that word comforter kind of cues you into sort of a motherly presence. We use that word for heavy blankets, warmth, slow down, stop, rest, comfort. And yet, when the Comforter comes, this Holy Spirit, when he comes upon the people, when he comes to be with God's people, what does he come with? He comes and he sets them on fire. And they immediately begin to speak, and they speak loudly and big. And they speak of things to people from all over the world. So, co so cohesive, so impressive and persuasive that these people then become followers of this Jesus. And thousands are baptized. And then again, and thousands are baptized. The size, the scope, the volume of this Christianity, that's what we need. And as you get to Romans 12, the, side, the second sort of half of this chapter, all of a sudden you start getting these pistol shots over and over and over again, these very short phrases that have big verbs, big ideas, big impositions into your life, things that are supposed to be happening. And as the rapidness of these statements comes, there's a building sort of crashing volume to the kind of life that a Christian should live. And it is markedly more loud and exciting than the lives of most Let's read it and talk about why. First it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, let love be genuine. That's going to be our key verse for the day. I think that's the verse that gives you access to the rest. But look at what it says after that. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Then it continues and it doesn't get smaller, but it gets bigger. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
When I was growing up, there would be little city fireworks shows all around. But the church that I went to was a fairly large church, and they decided to do their own fireworks show for the 4th of July. And it wasn't just a fireworks show. It was a gigantic fireworks show. They had the big, big, big fireworks, not like back-of-the-trunk fireworks, gigantic cannon-like fireworks that would go way, way up in the air and they would explode. And because it was just a small church and you had the campus that you had, the kind of place that you had, you'd be sitting in the parking lot looking at this stuff, and it would be going off, and it's so loud and it's so big that it's concussive. You feel it in your chest even as you hear it and see it. And it would go off over and over and over again. It would be this big, long, gigantic display, and there's music playing. I think it was probably worship music, but it's the kind of music that you hear with fireworks celebrations. The big Sousa marches or whatever, and Lee Greenwood singing about how he's proud to be an American. I'm not going to regale you with it, but I think you know the tune. And it's just big and exciting, and it's loud. And part of what was cool about it, it wasn't all that distinct from other city fireworks shows, but part of what was cool about it is because I went to the church, I had access to, I could kind of look around, I could get there early and kind of see what was going on, and I'd never been able to see kind of the pit where all that stuff goes off. And they had set up what kind of looks like, um, I, don't, I don't know what the right word for it would be, but just these PVC pipes that were all arranged in these rows and columns, and each of those was filled with, you know, all kinds of unspeakable stuff. And you had tubes that had wires, and the wires and the fuses came out from there, and they went a long distance away where a person who was far away from the explosions could light them. Now, I'm sure that it was like electric and that it was all computerized and very, very like uh, advanced. In my head, it's very Bugs Bunny. You know, they lit a match and they set the fuse and the fuse went all the way around and curled up and over people and then got to the place where all the fireworks were, and then all of a sudden... <laughs> The sky is rent open. Here's what I kind of think you and I should read when we read these verses. It's possible to just read them and think, oh, geez. All right, let me load up more bricks on my head. Just more obligations that the Christian has. If I'm going to pretend to be a Christian, if I'm going to impress the world with my Christianity, then I've got to also do these things. But no. That's exactly the opposite. What we have in Scripture is this idea that if love is genuine, then all of these things will explode out of you. If love is genuine, if you really get that genuine love, if you feel, if you have experienced that genuine love, then that love starts to express itself out from you. And that love is so powerful that the expression of that love is as loud as, as visual as, fireworks. Big, real good fireworks. Not junky, cheap fireworks. So, how do we get there? How do we understand it? What do we get to understand love being genuine? Well, in all things, we're going to understand the perfect by going to the perfect. So, Jesus is not merely somebody who taught a lot of this stuff. He lived this stuff. And I want to kind of understand from his life some of the underlying principles that are going to allow us to then express our Christianity in all of the light and heat of the rest of the verses. One of the great places to start with this genuine love, this love that is actually genuine, that goes all the way down and has consistency is Mark chapter 12. 
in it, you have these disputes coming up between people who knew the law or knew the Old Testament. And one of these people is arguing, and they see that Jesus is answering well. It says in verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. Now, I can already feel it kind of happening. I don't have my notes organized to the point where I can see how often I repeat verses, but I know that I use this verse a lot. And I can see some of you that have been faithful and been around Hope Church for a long time may be rolling your eyes internally a little bit and saying, okay, I think we've been over this ground. But if you say that and your life is not explosive with the gospel, A, you've missed it. And B, even if your life is explosive with the gospel, this is the place that it comes from. We don't graduate from these verses. Jesus is saying the whole of God's revelation, the whole of God's law spoken to us is summed up in, is not greater than these words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you've not figured this piece out, if you don't keep coming back to this piece, then you're never going to get Christianity. You're never going to have the explosive growth that we're talking about, the kind of genuine growth that we're looking for. He says that you should love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And the kind of crustiness that comes over your eyes and the kind of stuffiness that comes over your ears when you imagine that this is tread over ground gets you in trouble. I would say that it gets you in trouble if you can look at your life and say that there's not this explosive, dynamic, impactful Christianity. These verses end with talking about how you deal with your enemies. Do you have enemies? I don't know, you got rivals at work, but do you have enemies because of your gospel proclamation? You don't want to be a jerk about it, but everybody who was faithful in Scripture had enemies. Do you? If not, can I maybe suggest that it's because there's just not a lot of volume in your Christianity? And if not, let's go to the diagnosis point of this understanding of love. Let's state it differently and say, if you're having trouble abhorring what is evil, the strength of that word we can talk more about in just a second, but the strength of each of the different words that are in these little pistol shots throughout this text, that word abhor means to literally turn in horror from something. Do you turn in horror from what is evil? I forget who expressed this, but it's so true. We're in a society that can't blush. I remember the last time I was scandalized by something. Why? Because I've gotten a little bit of a hard heart. I've gotten a little bit used to and casual about things that God says are evil. Have you? 
Do you hold fast to what is good? Is there a rock-like grip in your life around the things that God has called good? If not, do you love one another with brotherly affection? Not common acquaintance affection, brotherly affection? Do you outdo one another in showing honor? You're going to have the opportunity to do that. We've mentioned it a couple times because there are like vocal um, individuals at either end of the spectrum when it comes to how do we deal with this situation. I don't know that they're the majority. I think they're probably closer to a silent minority. And yet, are they, are you ready to outdo one another in showing them honor? Has your zeal become slothful? If it has, you've got to come back here. You've got to come back to what Jesus said in John 13, 34. New commandment I give you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. So that's what we're going to do. I want to understand how does Jesus love genuinely for us to understand how we are going to love genuinely. It says... In the Gospel of Mark, and it comes up in other places as well, but a story about this guy who was a rich young man. Some call him the rich young ruler, some call him the rich young man. Point is, he's a dude, he's young, and he's got money. And he comes up to Jesus, and he speaks to Jesus. He, he kneels before him, and he says, To Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? And Jesus has this kind of, uh, he commonly does this, but he has this kind of answer that puts the guy a little off scance. Because Jesus says to him back, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And it's because he already gets this guy. And he says, Jesus says to the rich young man, hey, you want to inherit, inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments. You know the commandments, keep them. And Jesus begins to quote some of the different of the Ten Commandments. The rich young man, and he speaks in a very cheeky, really proud way. Not aware of himself in the least, but he says back to Jesus, woof, all of these I've kept from my youth. Jesus, I got that. Ten Commandments, done. Give me the hard stuff. Give me the level two, because I've already perfected Judaism. And then, and this is what is so unique about Christ, because when Jesus looks at this guy, he doesn't want to vomit because of this guy's pride. It says, Jesus this is Mark 10, 21. Jesus, looking at this man, loved him. He saw him, and he loved him. He said to the rich young man, you lack one thing. Go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and you're going to have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, if you're just reading through this text, and you're reading through this text as a new Christian who has just learned about the gospel and the fact that God saves because he's good, not because of anything that you've done, just by his grace. And you read this story, and you read about Jesus saying this, and there's a party that says, what? I, if I'm going to become a Christian, the, the doorway into Christianity, the entrance stamp into Christianity, is that I have to sell everything that I have and give it to the poor? A, wow, B, what's anybody that's done that? You got Mother Teresa, you got monks in the uh, history of the world or whatever that have done stuff like that, but I don't know that I know Christians like that. It's so odd to read this. 
Well, it's because Jesus saw this guy, knew this guy, and presented this guy with a gospel message that was tailored to this guy. He loved this guy genuinely. He saw him, and he loved him. So he spoke the gospel that this guy needed to hear. He said to this guy who had great wealth and was not only convinced of his monetary wealth, which was evident, but he was convinced of his moral wealth, that he had kept all the law of God. Now, Jesus, in, in the beginning of Matthew, he talks about how the, the law of God is so much bigger, so much deeper than we realize, that it goes down to our hearts. And you say, okay, it's not just enough not to have actually committed physical adultery, but you can't even look on a woman without, with lust. Because then you're doing it in your heart. He does the same thing with murder. And yet, we know that Jesus brings all of this back to the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Not going to have any other God before him. Which goes back to how all the commandments come together in that word that Jesus spoke later in Mark. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus saw this guy who was convinced of his wealth, material and moral, he said to him, you love this stuff, but you can't love anything more than me. If you'll give that up for me, if you'll break that idol, which in your heart is the idol, if you will break that idol, then you follow me. Anything else is attempting to use Jesus to gain more in your pursuit of that idol. This guy saw himself as very upright morally and sees Jesus as a good teacher. So he wants to be good like Jesus is good. He wants to use Jesus' reputation as a stepping stone to furthering his reputation. Jesus won't allow that. So he sees this guy and he loves him genuinely. And he speaks the word that this guy needs. Now it says in this text that he goes away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And maybe that's how the story ends. We don't know. It doesn't continue from there. But we do know that Jesus is Jesus, and he gave this guy his best opportunity for the right kind of understanding, the right mix of confrontation and truth. And that Jesus does that to a guy who would probably come off as a little haughty to us, somebody we wouldn't really want to be around or be with, might admire, not like, because he has a genuine love. Now, when we share about what Jesus has done for us, we want to share in the highway and on the hedges. Anybody that you get to know and get to talk to, anybody that you have time with, you should have this stuff just flowing out of your lips. You should be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. You should be ready to share with people, fishing, always fishing for men. But if God, in His relationship, in the, the way that He's organized your life, has given you relationships that can go deeper, that can last longer... You are called to love genuinely like this. To get to know somebody, to see somebody, to get to know their heart, and then to be able to speak the words that they need to hear in order to understand the one true gospel. If we begin to do that, I want you to think for a moment about how wonderful a place the church should be. If we're the kind of people who start to see and genuinely love others, 
what would it be like to be in community with those people all the time? To be rubbing shoulders with over a great period of time, because remember, we're going to commit. It's going to take a while, and whenever that's time, that's time, okay? Take your steps, be slow if you need to, but when it's time to commit, you're going to commit, and you commit to a place, and so because you're committed to a church, you're rubbing shoulders with these people over time, and they are a community dedicated to seeing you, Knowing you, genuinely loving you. Is there a better place on the planet? It's been my experience with Hope Church. I'm inviting you into that same thing. Now we're supposed to have a genuine love, and he talks about a fervency. We're supposed to be fervent in spirit. There's an intensity to each of these different commands that we get in Romans 12. Go back to Romans 12, verse 9, sort of the second half. And he says again, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You don't be slothful in zeal. What is zeal? How do you be slothful in zeal? It's not possible. It is possible in sin, but the God, God is saying, no, 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 that's not what God has called you to. That's not what electricity in the Christian life should produce in you. You've got to be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. All of these words, all of this kind of top shelf language that Paul is using, the Holy Spirit through Paul is speaking to us, should convey an intensity. That's not just a genuine love, but it's an intense love. Michael Jordan, again, the big documentary that's going around with him right now. It's the only thing people can watch because, you know, what else is there, right? I mean, there's unending stuff on all these different streaming platforms, but uh, it's weird how quickly you run out of stuff to watch. The documentary about Jordan, the one big thing I remember about him or the one of the big things he said that's really impacted me in my life is that you don't want to teach your kids basketball until they love basketball. What he meant by that was there's a whole industry, there's a whole mechanism for forcing your kid to get good at basketball from like the time they walk. And you kind of have to do that if they want to be successful long term, because you got to get that stuff in early because it just takes so many reps. Malcolm Gladwell, get your 10,000 hours with free throw shooting. Get your 10,000 hours with just a jump stop to really learn how basketball works and the different pieces and how they move. But Jordan actually kind of poo-pooed a lot of that and said, no, 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 no. The number one thing you need to do with your kid is just let them love basketball. And he's right. If you start to really enjoy basketball, I remember being in seventh grade. I'm a tall guy. I don't know if you met me or if it communicates on the camera or whatever, but I'm a tall guy. And as a tall guy, this like the thing that you do is play basketball. And I remember the summer of seventh grade actually falling in love with basketball. I'd played basketball, I'd gone to camps in the summers, I'd done a lot of basketball, but in the summer of seventh grade, I fell in love with basketball. And it wasn't at a camp, it wasn't out of a textbook or watching game film, it was at a junky basketball hoop in a park in an uneven um, sort of parking lot with two or three buddies. And we were all terrible. But we play 36, or we play two-on-two, two, we play uh, gotcha, knockout. It's got a lot of different names regionally. And we just play for hours. 
We'd go out there and we hit it and we would just stay. And we began to just love basketball, love the feeling of having your elbow in and really getting that perfect shot and then watching that perfect arc as it goes through. The feeling of getting past somebody and making that layup. The feeling of the way the pieces all move together and the fluidity of the sport. Then, once you get to put your teeth into that kind of love for the poetry of basketball, that's when you'll go through and do your 10,000 hours. You will never outplay the gym rat who just can't leave because he loves it. Do you understand that that's what Christianity is putting out? You get this whole thing about faith versus works. And okay, do I do things in order to be a Christian? Or am I, am I a Christian because of the things that I do? Or, stated differently, boy, if you tell people they're saved by grace, they're never going to work very hard. They're certainly not going to be passionate about their holiness. No. If they love it, then... Order, then they will do it. If they love God, then because of their love of Him, not because of their innate moral vision, they will abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Not because of some internal energy level that just keeps them popping off. They will actually have a real native zeal for the things of God and the people that God loves. An intensity to your love will follow from a genuine love. Seeing his love and then expressing his love. And how do we see that in the life of Christ? You see that everywhere in the life of Christ. As Jesus does, as he speaks, as he lives, he is constantly having to go away and rest. Why? Because he's just wearing it out. He's giving everything he's got to these people until you get to the end. It says in Luke 23, 33, and 34. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Christ. And the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. What did he give? How intense was his zeal? He gave everything. It says here that he not only gave his life, he gave his honor. He gave his standing. They even took his garments. He died penniless, in shame, separated from God and man. He gave everything. So intense is his love for you. And how do you step into this? How do you receive this? How do you begin this? Well, it goes all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. In view of God's mercies. In view of this grace. In view of this kind of love, which is a nuclear reactor that can power a megacity. And instead of a megacity, it is just plugged into the table lamp of your heart. If you could just reach it, if you could just experience it, if you could just feel it. That's our prayer. We're praying all the time that people would get it. That they would put their roots down into this truth and that would produce the fruit 
of all these other commands in this chapter. Commands that include not being haughty. He's bringing up pride again because, hey, we're proud. That include forgiving your enemies because you're going to make enemies. And then he teaches you to forgive them. Are you ready to do that? You're so proud that... I'm going to soften this. Most people have a tendency towards pride, and you, like most people, may also have a tendency towards pride. You are so proud that when your opinions are checked in any way, you immediately become offended. How do I know? Because I have a mirror. I do the same thing. And yet, you are called to love your enemies, and you are resourced to fulfill that call through this love. Do you know this love? Oh, if you do, if you do know this genuine love, this love that sees you in all the dark corners and all the hidden places, that knows you and still loves you, you receive this fire from heaven. See, I'm, I'm comparing us to fireworks. I want this genuine love to be a thing that just ignites us and makes us erupt out into the world. But in the cross, what we have is a meteor. We have heaven itself reaching down to impact us. And what we find at the cross is not merely judgment, even though that's part of it, but also this kind of incredible love. I'm going to pray now, and I just want you to take a moment to think about whether or not you have known this love. Because it will make all the difference. Lord God and Heavenly Father, this is the seed, this is the heart, this is the foundation of everything that we think. Father, if we are supposed to be fireworks, this is the spark. If we're supposed to be sprinklers, this is the water, Father. This is everything that we are supposed to do and feel and believe in the faith. And I just ask that people would know your genuine love. Not through the foolishness of preaching necessarily, but through the eternal effectiveness of your word through the display of that love in the cross. Father, I pray that you would write it in steel letters. I pray that you would write it in stone foundations in my heart and in the hearts of the people of Hope Church so we be ready for all the big things that are coming so that we would explode with light and heat and set this world aflame. I pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.